Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am your host for this interview. And I'm speaking today with Sheila McManus. Dr. McManus is a professor of history at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada, and is the author of the new book, Both Sides Now writing the edges of the North American West, which came out with Texas A&M Press last year in 2022. Welcome to the New Books Network, Sheila. Good to have you here. Thank you for the invitation, Stephen. I really appreciate the opportunity. Why don't we start, as we always do on the show, by just hearing a little bit about who you are. Tell us about yourself, your background, and I'm especially interested in uh, how you became uh, interested. I am interested in how you became interested (laughs) in history and the history of the West uh, in particular. Yeah, thanks. So um, I am teaching in Southern Alberta, as you noted, but I actually grew up here as well. So I grew up in Calgary, um, which is just a little bit north of where I am now, a little bit north of the border. Um, and my undergrad, I was actually an English major and history minor, but I wound up pursuing history for graduate school, uh, for a few reasons. The history profs just seemed like way more fun, nice people than the English profs. Uh, the undergraduate student history club was way more fun than the undergraduate English club. Um, and I took, I had one of those undergraduate professors and, uh, Um, Dave Marshall at the University of Calgary, and I happened to take a course on the history of Canadian women with him very near the end of my first degree. And working with him helped get me into my master's degree and then sort of continued me on my way from there. Um, And the project I did for him as an undergrad was about the history of uh, white women in Southern Alberta in the early 20th century. Uh, And that wound up becoming the basis of my master's thesis, which was on settler uh, farm and ranch women in Southern Alberta, uh, early 20th century up to about the late 1920s. Um, And that's actually also that thesis as well as where I grew up is partly what got me into comparative and transnational and then borderlands work. As I was working on that master's thesis, um, I realized that the white communities in Southern Alberta, even in the early 20th century, were so interconnected with communities uh, in Northern Montana, primarily at that point. Um, And this kind of began to really resonate with my own upbringing. Like I say, I grew up in Calgary, um, so the border was, you know, only ever a couple hours drive away. And I have this vivid memory um, when I was a kid of uh, visiting so Waterton Lakes National Park and uh, the lake, the main lake there straddles the border and there's a boat you could take and it's called the International. And, you know, when you're at the south end of the lake, you're in Montana, you're in the United States. Um, and I, as I was working on my master's thesis, I suddenly remembered this image when I was a kid of thinking, well, if I'm in a different country, why doesn't it look different? Um, because, you know, it's a continuous ecology, the mountains are the same, the the water's the same, the lake is the same. Um, So that came back to me. And then I think growing up in Calgary, which was so often described as, you know, or Alberta is often described as the Texas of the North, um, or Calgary, certainly when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, that particular oil boom, you know, the Dallas of the North. Um, So I think I already had a predisposition to be sort of interested in the position of Southern Alberta and and Calgary and its relation to Montana and then the U.S. more broadly. So all of that kind of came together into my PhD, which then became my first book, which looked at the Alberta-Montana borderlands in the late 19th century. Um, And that's, you know, what, what got all of it started, I think. Well, that kind of leads into my next question as well, which is, I'm curious what brought you to this book in particular. And we can talk about and define what borderlands are in in a, in a moment, but mm-hmm. it sounds like you've always been interested in borders and in questions about, you know, what makes a border and how borders are these, you know, very socially and culturally constructed things. So what's the path you took to to this current book? 
Yeah, yeah, there really, there really is kind of a straight line. I mean, um, from the the MA to the PhD, and then I think the current one is just a culmination of kind of you know the last twenty years of thinking. Um, I finished my PhD more than twenty years ago, and that book came out in two thousand and five. Um, so yeah, I think I really was predisposed just because of where I grew up and questions I began asking as an undergrad and then into grad school. What does a border mean? What does it mean when it doesn't look different on the other side? Um, and then, uh, I think the current book, so if, if we go back to the first one on the Alberta, Montana borderlands, it was, you know, you need something doable for a PhD thesis. Um, and at the time, um, nobody in Canada was really doing borderlands historiography. It's a model of scholarship that just doesn't really exist in Canada. So I didn't have a lot of, um, kind of network or resources up here to sort of work on and think through how do you ask questions about borderlands. So it needed to be fairly defined. It needed to be fairly focused. So I stuck to, I was really curious about how Blackfoot territory, which is where I am now, becomes the Alberta Montana borderlands. So how do you make a border? And yeah, that the current book then, um, the, the intervening 20 odd years, I became increasingly interested in moving beyond, okay, so there's this one piece of the 49th parallel that I'm, that I began being really interested in. Um, and then that gets you into the broader borderlands historiography. And that just gets you into these broader questions of the borderlands scholarship in general. And yeah, what is a border? What does it mean? And so the, the current book, it started off, it was just supposed to be an article. It was supposed to be a, a little article. I did a couple little conference papers 10 years ago, maybe, saying, hey, you know, maybe the Canada-US and US-Mexico borders aren't that different, because what I was seeing in the scholarship and in the histories was there seemed to be a lot of, you know, perhaps weird, unexpected similarities between these two borders, between how these borderlands function. Yes, certainly there are profound present-day political differences, and, and I'm not questioning any of that, but but it started off, like I say, it's just a couple little couple little conference papers around, gosh, these two borders and their borderlands and their historiographies seem to have some stuff in common. I did not have a book in mind at that point in time. Um, but then, you know, as you know, you're kind of, you know, early to mid-career and someone approaches you and says, hey, I think this could be a book. You know, you, you kind of just stupidly say yes to things. Um, and uh, the editor, at that time, the editor of the series for Texas A&M, they were sort of at that point, just developing a new um, comparative North American borderlands kind of series. And so the little conference paper, you know, I was asked, oh, do you think there's a book in this? And as you say, when you're kind of dumb in mid-career, you say, oh, yeah, sure, there's absolutely a book in this. <laughs> and um, at that point, I was just coming off. I had just finished writing a textbook on women in the U.S. West. And what I envisioned whenever I signed that contract years ago now, I thought it was going to be the same kind of thing. I thought it was going to be just like a, a, a little, a synthetic piece, um, just kind of an overview of the scholarship, something to get people into um, the broader scholarship about the historiography of North America's Western borderlands and just kind of say, hey, look, these two borderlands have things in common and maybe they're not as different as we think. And that was initially what the, the plan was. I just wanted, I thought, oh, maybe some kind of little overview showing some of those similarities. There's, you know, just lots of events that overlap or, or you know, decisions being made about the two borders in close proximity to each other, that kind of thing. And then <laughs> I, I joke about it as the historiography began to kind of fight back. Um, I've always had an interest in historiography. Um, uh, you know, for most historians, it's, you know, methodologically a foundation for what we do. But I began getting really obsessed with how Borderlands historians write and the kinds of questions we ask. And why do we ask questions that seem different than other historians? Um, so as much as I initially thought it was going to focus, it was going to be a history of the two borderlands, the two Western borderlands, um, it, it really became much more about the historiography. I just was so fascinated with how borderlands historians work. Um, the, as I say, the kinds of questions we ask, why do we seem to come at things differently than you know, most of our colleagues in the broader field of professional history, it remains a very na nation state based, very sometimes nationalist. Those are still the silos um, we use to structure the discipline. It's how we structure our undergraduate curricula. It's how we structure graduate school. It's how we identify ourselves at conferences. Oh, I'm an Americanist. I'm a Canadianist. And borderlands historians, I think, are a different bunch. 
Um, so I just got quite interested in the historiography of it. Um, how and why borderlands historians do what we do and think differently about what we do and that's how the book became sort of this hopefully more or less fluidly intertwined telling the histories of these borders of these borderlands at the same through the lens of the borderlands historians um primarily uh the first kind of two decades of this century um how that scholarship has shaped and and um, yeah, how that scholarship has shaped our understanding of these borderlands and their histories. Well, we should we should back up here for for a quick second and define a couple <laughs> terms terms that we're yeah. using before we talk more <laughs> about them. So, what are borderlands? Borderlands is the kind of term where people probably, even if they've never read a single uh, word of borderlands historiography, you could probably have some idea about what that word means. But when you use it in the book, and when historians mm. tend to use it, mm. it tends to have a more specific kind of pinned down meaning. So, what are borderlands, and what utility does this concept, does this this lens of analysis have for the North American? West specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm happy with a real simple definition myself. For me, um, I, I think borderlands are the spaces on either side of a line that maintain connections across that line. Um, and that is, you know, not a particularly rich or complicated definition. My own work, I have been mostly interested in that line being the political demarcation between nation states. But of course, in, in now in borderland scholarship, more broadly, that line can mean any kind of demarcation. And the borderlands are the spaces on either side, the communities, the people, the economies that maintain the connection. Um, so the closer you are to a line that is supposed to divide you, um, the connections at the level of human beings, economies, movement, culture can be quite strong. And then they just, you know, as they as you get further away from whatever that dividing line is, you don't perhaps feel or see that same sense of connection. There have certainly been a lot more, you know, much more sophisticated, much more perhaps articulate and complicated uh, definitions of a borderlands. But I kind of like that simple one. It's the spaces on either side of a line that is supposed to divide. Um, and it's spaces that maintain connections with the other side, that there are connections that are continued um, in spite of that line. I think in terms of the utility for thinking about the West, um, the U.S. West in so many ways was kind of the perfect case study. I don't think I could have written a book like this about any other sort of borderlands in the world because the U.S. West has, you know, these two particular northern, these two particular borders, but also because these two borders are we are conditioned to think of them as different kinds of borders, right? The U.S.-Mexico borderlands and that borderline occupy and have long occupied a very particular kind of space in the scholarship, a very particular kind of place in contemporary political rhetoric, whereas the Canada-U.S. line uh, is just invisible. Um, and the certainly I have argued in this book and, and elsewhere, I think the U.S. West and the broader North American histories are shaped by both of those lines. But for me, kind of coming into this as a case study of how do we think about borderlands? Um, what do borderlands have in common? Like, are, are there a set of core functions that borderlands, whether it's here in the North American West or anywhere around the world, is there a core set of things that borderlands do that make them borderlands? So for me, the U.S. West, as I say, gave me kind of the perfect case study because I could contrast these two borderlands and their scholarship. Um, and then sort of, as I, as I do very briefly in the conclusion of the book, play with that a little bit in looking at the rise of sort of global borderland scholarship. But I think, and of course I would say this as a borderlands historian, I think thinking about borderlands in general, not just for the US West, but perhaps for the discipline, you know, um, I think we should do more often because it would challenge the way that our discipline still relies on the nation state as the organizing principle um, for our scholarship. Um, so, of course, I am going to say that, ah, yes, you know, not everyone has to obsess over invisible lines as often or as much as I do. Um, but, you know, maybe we should think about borders and borderlands um, and the edges of those spaces that we write about as historians or that we occupy as people. Maybe we should just think about them a little bit more. 
So as you say in the book, some of the earliest borderlands were separate from European empires, which are usually the things that are typically associated with the idea. A lot of the earliest borderland mm. studies come out of uh, European imperial studies of, say, the Spanish colonial empire in the mm-hmm. 16th century, right? But as you argue in the book, that that's not necessarily the, the most useful place or way to begin. So can you tell mm-hmm. us a bit about indigenous borderlands in North America and how these indigenous borderlands often functioned and how they kind of tell a different story, take a different approach to borderlands history yeah i think for me that was a really important step um you know as i've already mentioned the 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 way that we organize the discipline and the way i think we think about time and space we rely on these days the borders of nation states right the nation state becomes kind of the the preeminent way to organize um people and places um over the last couple of centuries um, borderlands, because of the way borderlands historiography began, um, kind of as a as a specific methodology, which was with um, a book by Eugene Bolton called The Spanish Borderlands, a um, little over 100 years ago now, he wrote that. So a lot of the scholarship focused on first imperial borderlands, right, the edges, if we think about here in the North American West, you know, where did Spain and France and England and Russia, you know, bump up against each other and clash or, or whatever. And for me, one of the really interesting bodies of recent scholarship about the borderlands was about pushing that back um, and looking at the indigenous ways of thinking about space, indigenous ways of organizing their edges that precede the empire, that precede nation states. Um, and yeah, so I talk in the book about there's kind of a range of, you know, there's there's been some pretty amazing books written about um, different indigenous territories throughout North America. So I really wanted to explore that because it seemed to me that what I was seeing and how indigenous territories and borderlands function somehow are the core functions that I continued to see. Um, So I think about, you know, not surprisingly, this was based on, um, as I mentioned, my first book was on the Alberta, Montana borderlands. But what I was interested in was how this space is Blackfoot territory. This is the traditional territory of the Nitsitapi or Blackfoot speaking peoples. Um, Their territory ranged far north of what is, you know, now the U.S.-Canada border, um, all the way down to um, Yellowstone. And we have certainly other examples, um, indigenous nations around North America who are now divided by uh, settler colonial edges. Um, and that's where I think when some of the really interesting scholarship has been done. So thinking about here on the northern end of things, it's say the Sinaixt in sort of BC, Washington, um, the Blackfoot here. Uh, further over, you can certainly look at, you know, the Lakota a little bit or the Haudenosaunee if you go further east. In the southwest example, the best example there is, of course, the Tonawatom, um, continuing to insist upon, right, a, a, a continuous territory for themselves. Um, and what fascinated me about thinking about indigenous territories and borderlands before we see that imperial or nation state influence is that tension between the fluidity of an edge um, and still needing an edge to, you know, define differences. So, you know, if I could broadly characterize it, indigenous territories were, you know, yes, ancestral homelands, but they were territories that you used that your people used and could defend um so it's not as if indigenous peoples didn't have any notion of borders they absolutely knew um you can still ask any blackfoot person today where where's the beginning and end of their traditional territory and who is on the other side of it um and you can have a, a similar conversation i think with an indigenous person anywhere across the continent so it was this tension there between yes, here is our territory, and it's what we can use, and it's what we can hold, and it's what our sacred sites are, and it's about who we are as a people. But they are then a lot more fluid. One of the biggest differences that imperial and then national borderlines bring in is the belief that they are fixed and static and should never move. Um, But indigenous borderlands allowed for more fluidity. Um, You would lose territory if you couldn't hold it or if you weren't using it. There was a fluidity of people um, the long tradition of, you know, adopting new kin um, through war, after warfare, disease. Um, so there was a fluidity and a mobility to indigenous borderlands that I found really interesting. And that, for me, helped explain some of what I think we can still see even today um, in, in contemporary borderlands regions, that they have a way and this is a big argument in the book that borderlands 
peoples um, have a way of resisting. They have a way of maintaining fluidity um, and movement and complex identities and, and, and that kind of thing in spite of lines that are now supposed to be very static. And at least in the imperial and uh, national contexts, um, you know, after the, 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 the 17th and 18th century, when you mm. have European empires colonizing so much of, of North America, their goal is, broadly speaking, to turn these borderlands into bordered lands. Right? Yes, to, yes. To gain control over these regions to kind of exert their hegemony over mm-hmm. these regions that are so fluid. So mm-hmm. I'm curious what kinds of effects that process has on the borderlands and the people who live in those borderlands, and then how that process was often incomplete. So how did borderland regions and cultures and peoples and languages often linger even after these harder borders were imposed on these places? Yeah, um, I think it, if I can try boiling it down, the imposition of these external borders, it was always about creating some kind of binary, right? Um, Spanish versus French holdings, Spanish versus English holdings, um, you know, American versus Spanish versus French holdings or, or whatever. So it was about trying to impose a binary, a much clearer binary there's 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 an us there's a them and they are not like us and you know our our economies are going to be you know what we say they are um so i think imposing that any of these external lines certainly across the north american west it was about trying to make them into binary sites of division stopping movement except when authorized severing connections and communities um, and certainly reshaping economies as much as possible. And then the amazing ability of borderlands communities is always resisting that binary is saying, well, no, there aren't just two sides or, you know, I see the binary that you're trying to impose on me and I will use that if I need to in certain situations, but I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe you when you say that there are only two sides of this line and that, you know, we aren't so profoundly connected to each other. Um, and that that's one of the big tensions that I was trying to draw out a little bit in the book is how much effort goes into trying to impose a line on a map and make it into a line of division, demarcation, setting up a binary. There is this side and then there is that side and they are not supposed to have anything to do with each other. And then how this entire field of scholarship, I mean, borderland scholarship is what it is. I think because we as a group are just endlessly fascinated with how borderlands communities just keep saying no and just keep finding ways to resist. Not completely, right? At no point am I trying to suggest that the power of first the empire and then the nation state you know, isn't going to be holding the bigger stick on the ground. They are. Um, but borderlands communities always find some way, even if it's little ways, to maintain that human connection again um, across the line. And I think for me anyway, that that just continuing resistance, that continuing refusal of the binary um, is endlessly fascinating to me. And it's certainly one of the patterns that I think we can see in in uh, in global borderlands historiography as well. And that resistance is happening in the face of, uh, you know, some some pretty strong headwinds. At yeah. there's a, a lot of a lot of power that's being that's yeah. being sort of Im- imposed against people that are trying to maintain these borderland spaces. So yes. what what form or what kinds of forms does that does that power sort of take? I guess what I'm asking is how are borders enforced or yes. attempted to be enforced? Who is doing the enforcing? And then like why do this? What is the point of borders? Why not maintain <laughs> borderlands if you are you know if you are to, to kind of personalize something that's not personal, like a nation state or, an yeah. empire, right? Like why, mm-hmm. why engage in this kind of enforcement at all? And who are these people that enforcement is being targeted towards? Too? Yeah. The, the how is really interesting. Um, and this has been an interest of mine. I mean, it really since, since the first book, even where, when I had my much smaller case study of just the Alberta, Montana borderlands and looking at how Canada and the U S just kept trying this and then they would try that and then they would try something else to make make the line stick and it's fascinating to me because it ranges from sort of you know 19th century tools of categorization so it's like well we surveyed it and we drew a line on a map and you know they're, they're generally flummoxed as to why people other people might not care that there's a line on a map 
But you can see the, the surveyors and the government officials who authorize the surveys and then get the reports back from the surveys that, like, the first step is they generally think that surveys are going to do something for them. Like, aha, we have a line on a map. We're good now. Oh, no, people still keep crossing. Okay. And then you see them working on, okay, so enforcement, the beginning of the idea that we need to pay people to kind of hang around the line and stop people from crossing or in some instances, you know, chase people who have crossed. Um, so it's that initial sort of militarization of the line. More obviously, certainly at the U.S.-Mexico side, where it is the actual militaries on both sides um, trying to keep track of who's crossing. And this is this does initially begin with stopping indigenous movement. That's the first target. You know, why won't you respect this line through your territory? Um, well, OK, we need to get our armed men there to try and, you know, stop you from doing so. Um, so that militarization begins first and is certainly much more obvious at the U.S.-Mexico line. Um, it takes a while to develop um, up here in Canada because Canada doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have some big army that it can send out to the line. So that's kind of the next step. And then they start, you know, um, we can watch all three nation states begin building in things like immigration policies. Well, again, if you've if you've written down on paper somewhere who can and cannot come in, um, then that's surely going to solve all of our border control problems. Well, it turns out that doesn't. So then you need a whole immigration bureaucracy to manage um, who's coming in and who can't come in. And, and you need people to don't stop just crossing the line wherever you want. You now have to report, right? So they start setting up, uh, you know, customs posts. They want people crossing the line only at places where there's some kind of government official keeping an eye on them and making that decision. So the, the bureaucratic layers and then the military layers keep adding up at the same time as you can see a great deal of discursive work, you know, hanging around in the background as well, that you need to make people believe that the line means something. Um, so to help people to stop people from crossing, you need to help them see that they should stay on one side or the other. And that's, I suppose most Borderlands historians have a fascination with nationalism. I certainly do. And how it gets created and imagined and, and then used. So you've got that discursive work of you need to get people to believe that the line is real and that it means something. And then you need to have a bureaucratic and policing apparatus in place where you discourage people from trying to cross the line or you have someone at the border saying no you can't come in but you can come in um and then that just turns into you know these increasingly complex 20th century bureaucratic systems really for all three nation states so i think that's kind of the how and the who um and i i am have been mostly blaming perhaps uh you know higher level government officials national officials in all three and certainly we can see them doing most of the work. Um, they are more highly invested than anybody else in those lines, meaning certain things and stopping certain kinds of people, you know, et cetera. There are certainly examples, um, and there's been some great scholarship about this in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. There are certainly other examples of local border communities also wanting to have their own meanings for the lines, right? Um, it, it would be I should not suggest that all borderlands communities are invested in fluidity and free movement. They aren't. Um, we certainly see, you know, uh, border militias, for example. We certainly see plenty of people living in proximity to the lines who also want to limit who can cross and when they can cross. Um, but I think that then brings me around to the why. And I think that's where we see a shared agenda between whether it's, say, a local militia, um, you know, trying to stop certain people from crossing the line, or as you begin to then work your way up of, you know, local military, police, immigration officials, you know, that kind of thing. The why is simultaneously kind of muddled um, and maybe really clear. It's being invested in a certain kind of identity a certain kind of national identity in particular, and for these three nation states, um, for the U.S. and Canada, it's about defining themselves as a certain kind of white nation in the 19th century. Mexico isn't doing that, but Mexico still wants to be seen as a certain kind of, um, you know, modern developing nation. Um, so U.S. and Canada will use 
racial categories more quickly to try to stop who can come in and try and stop who can cross the line. Um, we don't see that happening to the same extent in Mexico. But it's fascinating to me that's one of the key jobs that people think borders do and are doing. And still today, still today, people think that's what borders do. Well, they define the us and the them again. Um, that there's an us on, on this side of the line and we supposedly share certain kinds of characteristics and you are on the other side of the line and you don't share those characteristics. So these lines become naturalized. There's in fact an enormous amount of work creating them, enforcing them, reinforcing them over and over and over again. Um, but you need to get people to believe that that matters and that it means something. Um, and that for me is almost the more interesting side. It's like, okay, what, why does this matter? Why do we need to be invested um, in the line meaning certain things? And we see that, you know, I think certainly white Canadians are quite notorious for that. They're like, well, we don't really know what we are, but we aren't American. And you see that creep in to a lot of this, a lot of the language around borders and borderlines on the Canadian side of things, and even in the scholarship really early on, that, well, at least we're not American. And Canadians need the border to mean something like that. Um, you know, the parallel in the Southwest is, you know, well, at least we aren't Mexico. You know, um, that why is for me the most interesting question. I, I, am, I never cease to be interested in why, maybe because I've been obsessed about borders for so long now. Um, yeah, why, why do people care? Why, you know, in the 19th century, um, these three nation states were trying to establish themselves as nation states. You have to prove that you have control over your territory. You have to be able to enforce that authority to be seen as a proper, you know, grown up nation. Um, there's certainly money involved, right? You want to start managing the economy. You want to start, you know, taking your tariff cuts of whatever crosses the line. Um, and then when the why circles back around to national identities, um, again, you can see all three crafting certain kinds of identities at their Western borderlines. Um, and that for me is, it's part of the process that you can still see around us today that I'm just really, really interested in how and why these lines become so normalized and why do we still believe that they mean what the government tells us they mean if that makes sense it does make sense and you know while while you're talking and and you know while, while we're both thinking about how borders only exist in as much as people believe that they exist I was, exactly I was, at a, I, I was looking at a map on my wall um of of uh, of, of the united states and looking at yeah. where the kind of where the border sort of sits and i was imagining that borderline cutting through some very remote area right some very yeah. forested very mountainous area or even somewhere like that that's that's water right like yeah. the water border someplace where there is no real infrastructure really demarcating yeah. this side and that side yeah and why what what exactly does that mean to have a border there and yeah. how do people know why would people believe there's a border there and then i kind of was realizing well this map on my wall is one way right that you yeah. have this kind of soft infrastructure that enforces this idea of borders that we hang up in our houses as decoration and stuff which yeah. uh is you know as i'm sitting here talking with you i'm realizing is kind of a strange thing so yeah this question of how and why of borders uh it is it is indeed it, it kind of makes your head spin a little bit the more you think about it though. yeah <laughs> yeah, you will never, you know, once you start to, the more obsessed you get, um, you never can quite look at maps the same way. I particularly love the ones where um, uh, yeah, the, the space on the other side is empty. I love those maps mm -hmm. the best. Um, it's like <laughs> the world comes to an end on the other side yeah. of that border. Like we dare not even show a river or a mountain <laughs> range. Like I get why maybe you wouldn't want to show, you know, other internal political demarcations or whatever. But I love the ones where it's like the world just ends at the mm -hmm. line, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. be because that is telling the story, as you say, through this kind of soft power, it is telling us the story over and over again, that whatever's on the other side doesn't matter. Right. And that's not what you should be looking. Keep, stay focused on what is on this side of the line. Say, for example, like, no, no, this is the nation state to which you owe your loyalty and should link your identity and sense of yourself. And I just think that is such a fascinating, bizarre, kind of modern human thing, right? To think about space and identity that way. 
And one of the ways that uh, you describe in the book that the borders tend to break down, and this was maybe my favorite chapter of the book as, as well, one of the places or one of the, the, the ways that borders can be the most porous is not through necessarily human beings moving around or not through ideas, but through capital. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you talk about how the history of capitalism does a really good job of complicating our understandings of borders. So mm-hmm. how, is this the, how is this the case? Yeah. And it's interesting, right, because... Um, as soon as you draw a line, say a national border, an imperial border, um, capitalism, you've already built in the capitalism exception because nobody at the very highest reaches of either imperial or state power, no one draws a line thinking, aha, this is good. I will now be completely economically self-sufficient. No, it's about finding ways to use those lines to profit from the movement of goods and services. Um, So yeah, again, you know, drawing examples from the book in the North American West, um, there are cross-border, obviously, there are legitimate trade routes across the border, and there is, you know, illicit smuggling. There's no such thing as smuggling until you have a border, and now somehow that good cannot be transported one way, you know, or the other. Um, I love how quickly on both sides of the of the U.S. West, there are cross-border rail lines that often don't show up on maps. And I found this particularly hilarious. Um, at one point a few years ago, I was sort of looking at um, a range of different sort of advertising images around the borderlands. Um, and I'd be looking at a map and it would show, you know, all of the east to west continental rail lines, for example, in Canada and the U.S. And it did not show the sheer number of transportation routes, rail lines that cross the border, um, because those are in place almost immediately, too. Um, so it's it's always about making sure that profit can still be made. Borders aren't about stopping the movement of goods and services. It's about making sure that someone's making money off of it, right? Off of tariffs when they cross north, off of deciding which goods are licit and illicit. Um, and that's about supporting, you know, so alcohol, of course, being one of the alcohol and drugs, um, being the ones that are usually the most highly regulated. Well, sometimes they can cross, but we're going to tax them. And sometimes they aren't supposed to cross because we're supposed to be you know, protecting a domestic industry, uh, alcohol industry, for example. Um, so that interests me that borders um, get their reputation and do a lot of their identity formation work by making you believe that they are solid, right? And that, um, you know, stuff shouldn't be able to cross um, easily without us controlling it. When really, like, you know, the broader capitalist system, stuff's getting across there all the time. I was in the U.S. doing my postdoc shortly after 9-11, and, um, you know, there was such, you know, oh, the border with Canada is closed, right, because of the the mistaken rumor that, you know, one of the bombers had entered through a Canadian um, airport. Um, and I remember telling people, like, like that, that, that border, trucks were moving across that border really quickly. So it may have been closed, quote unquote, to people. Um, but goods, right? Capitalism was not going to let that border stay long. You had the, the premiers and the state governors of all the border states saying, like, please, at least, can we get trucks across? Um, it was fascinating to me to look, to notice the pandemic when, when the world starts shutting its borders down. Um, they did quite effectively stop human or limit, greatly limit human movement for a long, long time. But it was actually one of the rare times where um, it was legitimately more difficult to move goods and services around um, for the first time in a very long time. Hence, you know, the the supply chain concerns or whatever in the last few years. So porters are always porous to capital, always. And I think that has a telling message in there as well, that whatever work you think that line is doing to support your national identity myths, to, you know, support whatever um, projects you've got on the go within your little container, it's worth thinking about that capitalism, there is always a way to make money across the line. There is always going to be someone who has the money to get their goods and services moving across that line. Um, So, you know, those, if a border is always very highly permeable to capital, um, then, you know, what, what is the strength of the contemporary nation state? Um, what, what do you think that line is doing for you? Um, if, why do we, maybe let me phrase this more simply. 
Why do we only care about regulating human beings and their relationship to the line and put relatively little effort into regulating goods? I mean, yes, of course, there's always fuss about, especially in the North American West, of course, there's always conversations about, you know, drugs moving across the line um, one way or the other. Um, again, largely unsuccessful because the drugs managed to move anyway. But uh, that interests me, um, the way that, as I said, almost from the get-go, you've got, you've got cross-border rail lines, you have all kinds of cross-border licit and illicit uh, trade routes happening. Um, and that's never the concern. The border, is, border enforcement apparatus in general is always more concerned about people um, stopping human beings from moving. They're never really too concerned. Um, about stopping stuff from moving because there's profit in stuff, if I can phrase it that way. Yeah, it's, I guess the question is, in, in whose service do these lines exist at all? Right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we've been talking uh, uh, today about how borders, one of their, their goals is to, and it relates to what we were just saying, about how borders are usually designed with, with people in mind, right? Mm-hmm. That, that they're... They, the, the, the implicit goal of borders is to create these kind of discrete categories, right? You have us and you have them. Mm-hmm. You have us on this side of the border, you have them on that side of the border. Um, and yet, and yet, people in these borderland regions uh, don't fit into these neat categories often. They often try to retain more complex identities, which can often cut across these simple binaries that the mm. borders are trying to enforce. So can you talk a bit about the legacy of borderland identities uh, uh, surviving even in very border Regions. It's for me one of these really interesting ways that borderlands communities persist. Now, you know, the 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 new book I'm certainly mostly focused on because the scholarship is mostly focused on kind of late 19th and into the early 20th century. Um, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, gap, I think, in a way that we don't see much borderlands scholarship much past kind of the mid 20th century. There are reasons why borderlands historians, I think, are so obsessed with late 19th and early 20th. So most of my examples come from that time period. Um, it's it's those those times of just refusing the binary, right? Continuing to maintain family connections, kin connections, broader community connections across the line. There's so many great examples from indigenous nations, right? The ones I've already mentioned. Um, you know, there may be a line running through Sinaixt, Blackfoot, Haudenosaunee, Tonawatam, you know, territories, but that doesn't mean that those nations stop being kin on both sides. Um, even if we move away to sort of non-Indigenous communities, um, in terms of the scholarship, there has been so much amazing work done for the U.S.-Mexico borderlands about how um, Mexican and Mexican-American communities maintain kin connections and cultural connections across the line. I think that's one of the next, it's possibly one of the biggest kind of pockets of really amazing scholarship about the borderlands um, are, are the folks who have looked at that place um, across those decades of how it is that, because those are communities, I mean, those were the people against whom that border was supposed to work, right? Once we get into kind of the early 20th century U.S. border regime, um, once we're into the 20th century, the primary target has become um, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. So increasingly, by mid-century, the bulk of the effort is going into stopping their movement and dividing their communities. And yet, scholars have shown they persist, they resist. Um, the cities, of course, the U.S.-Mexico line is, is different than the one up here because of so many binational cities. Um, so you've got entire urban regions with the line going through, so it's tougher to divide communities there. Um, and I, I just like always the way that you can see borderlanders choosing to maintain that kin connection, the family connections, like culture and language, of course. Um, And just, you know, even if the border slows them down or makes it harder for them to move across, they're still going to do it. Um, They still have to kind of play along with border enforcement regimes Right. I, I had the privilege of um, being part of a conversation with a Blackfoot elder here just a couple of weeks ago um, about the difficulty of sort of holding ceremony across the line and moving ceremonial items back and forth across the line because um, they're still family. That is still kin. Um, he might live on the north side of the 49th parallel, but, you know, um, the Blackfeet, so-called in Montana, are still family. So 
Borderlanders are going to keep trying to maintain that connection. Um, and you see them, again, there's been some brilliant scholarship done on this, where the, identi the identity you choose can shift and be strategic, right? D on, depending on which day of the week. Um, and I'm thinking now of some of the late 19th, early 20th century scholarship, um, again, about U.S.-Mexico borderlands communities. You know, on any day of the week, depending on what you're trying to achieve, maybe your identity or you say your identity is American or Mexican or Mexican-American or or indigenous, um, because again, for me, that's another one of the interesting pieces. Borderlanders, not all, but there's evidence certainly of many borderlanders realizing that those identities are not something that is fixed and binary, that their identities are choices you can make in the moment, depending on where you are in relationship to the line, depending on what you need to achieve, vis-a-vis -vis that line um, on any given day. Uh, borderlanders just don't seem to be as invested in that fixed binary national identification. Um, there's always ways of saying, okay, you know, yeah, I'll be this today and I can be that tomorrow. Um, because that alone pokes a really big hole in modern national identities. You're not supposed to be able to pick and choose. You're supposed to see them as something like hardwired at birth. You know, I should see myself as Canadian and therefore nice and friendly and fond of red mittens and hockey, right? Like this is supposed to be hardwired into me somehow. Um, but what we have is a huge body of historical scholarship showing borderlanders choosing now, we have less of that scholarship on the Canada-US line, and I kind of point out that gap. Um, I think because the US-Canada line has not been racialized, um, it is assumed that there's like basically white people on both sides. We haven't had, I think, as much interesting scholarship up here yet about how those identities get constructed and deployed. Um, I had mentioned earlier, right, there's the, the Canadian stereotype of, oh, well, at least we aren't Americans, literally shows up as early as the 1870s and 1880s. Um, but we don't have as much scholarship yet about how, how are borderlands communities up here choosing and negotiating that, especially when we have, um, for example, in Southern Alberta, um, there are so many families, if you go back, so many white families, if you go back three generations, they're American, right? The family like, you know, bounced twice across the U.S. plains, hit the Rocky Mountains and bounced north one more time. It was a pattern I had noticed way back in my MA research that really interested me. Um, so as I say, the, the, the pockets of scholarship for the U S Mexico line are so good about this showing borderlands communities being strategic, seeing identity as, as relational, as flexible and, and negotiable. Um, we don't have that kind of scholarship, uh, for the Canada U S borderlands kind of white communities yet. Um, but I think that pattern, I think that that pattern is going to hold. Um, and hopefully there's a, a very smart graduate student listening to right now. <laughs> Somebody else to, needs to write say, that book. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so we've been discussing the history and the historiography of borderlands and of borders and uh, of people that like to straddle those those sort of uh, boundaries and, and identities, mostly in the context of the North American West. Yeah. But you conclude you conclude the book by saying that this story needn't be limited to that yeah. region. And even though borderlands historiography has its roots in the southwestern borderlands, that uh, really this could be and should be and often is a global story. So uh, can you maybe briefly talk a bit about what a more global approach to borderlands might look like? Yeah, it's it's been absolutely amazing to watch. So, you know, as you say, borderlands like the methodology itself, the the way of thinking, the school of historiography begins with the U.S.-Mexico. And that is what, I mean, still to this day, um, you could stack up what everybody else in the world has written about a borderlands region, and we still would not equal the output of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands scholarship. Um, and, and I envy them that depth, um, that richness. But it's been amazing to watch in the last couple of decades um, the Borderlands historiography kind of as a methodology and just see the amazing work being done now um, around the world. Uh, a methodology that began with that one particular place and one particular kind of history 
is now being applied to other places. And that's interesting to me for a couple different reasons. One, sort of as someone who specializes in the North American West, I'm always wishing that we could sort of displace the U.S.-Mexico model a little bit. I've been pleased in the last couple of years to see that, like, at least now, for the most part, when people special, uh, advertise, say, a Borderlands job ad, they mostly now actually say, like, U.S.-Mexico. They, they finally realize that they have to define it. Um, certainly when I was starting my career, if you saw the word Borderlands, it just meant U.S.-Mexico and you weren't supposed to ask anything else. Um, it was just assumed that that was the place you were talking about. So from a North American perspective, I would like to see the field continue to embrace larger views. Um, I think there is, um, I think the field can get itself, can kind of back into a corner a little bit by assuming that the U.S.-Mexico borderlands are, um, as, as we have sometimes seen scholars say, that they are the normative, right? Or that they are, that, that, that the way... The US Mexico borderlands function is the way all borderlands function. Um, and while I certainly argue in this book that there are a core set of functions that, in fact, all borderlands have, I would like to see us um, take a wider lens because if we then move to the broader global scholarship, what does it mean when, as far as I can tell from, from what I have read of the global borderlands scholarship, Borderlands are acting the same way, and it, it always comes down to refusing that binary, right? Borderlanders are the smugglers. Borderlanders are the ones choosing more complicated identities. They are the ones certainly challenging to the best of their abilities nationalist narratives about who's in and who's out. Um, I mean, to say nothing of the increased pressure we're going to see on borderlines around the world with climate refugees and, and all the rest of it. So I just, I think there's a lot to learn. Um, right now, I would say one of my favorite sort of little emerging pockets of Borderlands scholarship is African Borderlands work, which is absolutely amazing because it's this, again, gigantic continent with these artificial, you know, mostly colonial era straight line borders running through incredibly complicated um, and rich ethnic, ethnically diverse regions. Um, so what little I've been able to read in that area is fascinating to me because that's where you see another great, great group of scholars looking at the complexities of identity, right? And how people negotiate and challenge and resist a line that somebody else imposed on them. Um, and what does that mean on the ground? So for me right now, that's some of the most interesting scholarship coming out. Um, and a lot of it so far has been around this question of figuring out ethnic identities in complex borderlands regions. Um, so there's there's kind of that historiographical answer. Like as a historian, I find it really interesting to now see a model that began in the U.S. Southwest 100 years ago, just a way of thinking and a way of asking questions. I love seeing historians around the world begin to ask more of those questions um, because I think it enriches the broader, you know, global borderlands historiography field in general. And then I think, you know, as someone who wants to critique the power of borders, um, and and I think as a species, we're going to have to start really critiquing the power of borders, as I say, to confront, you know, kind of other looming challenges. Um, what does it mean if borderlands, if borderlines and borderlands do kind of function the same way around the world? Like what that, for me, it pokes another hole in kind of the nationalist myths and the, and the present day emphasis on the nation state. What if no one's border is all that special or doing anything particularly unique. We certainly have degrees of awfulness. We can certainly look at different, like specific border regions around the world that are particularly awful um, in terms of, you know, how they treat people who cross, um, how they try to kill people who cross, right? We, we can all think of plenty of examples like that. The U.S.-Mexico line is certainly not alone um, in that kind of brutality. There are far worse ones. Um, but I want us to be a bit more critical as well. The Canada-U.S. line has benefited for a long time with that comparison, right? If we see, oh, well, those borders are awful, but our border is nice, it means that Canadians remain quite blind to how awful our borders also are for migrants and refugees. Um, we can acknowledge simultaneously that borders, you know, as a human concept, for me, um, lead to a bunch of generally quite unpleasant consequences. Um, but I think we need to be able to 
not only rightly point to the border regimes that are particularly cruel around the world, but understand that they are on a continuum. Um, there's no there's no border in the world that is just you know a happy fluffy border not doing anything. It is also still deciding who's in and who's out. Um, and as I say, if I bring it back around to my North American interests, um, the Canada-U.S. line has benefited for a long time. Um, as long as you can point to the U.S.-Mexico line as being particularly brutal or militarized. You know, most Canadians forget that until 1943, there were as many Border Patrol officers on this side, mostly trying to keep, you know, sort of Chinese migrants out. Um, I think that weakens our ability to critique borders, border regimes in general. Um, if we continue to just say, well, that border's bad, but this border's fine. I think they're all various degrees of bad and problematic. That's my opinion, at least. Um, and it makes it more difficult to appreciate the, the amazing resilience of borderlands communities and um, the ability to see across that line. I think that if we are going to confront some of the challenges that we are facing, climate change, climate refugees, for example, I want more people to think like borderlanders. I want more people to see through that line, to realize that that line is artificial, that it's probably lying to you about what its day job is. I want more people to see the folks on the other side as kin um, and realize that we have problems that we need to face collectively. Um, and I think if we can put a sort of a global, a more global borderlands lens on, we need to understand the histories of these lines. Absolutely. We need to understand the unique and different histories of each of the lines. Absolutely. I am not trying to say that every borderland in history um, has had the same kind of history, but they have a certain core set of functions. Um, and then I, I think we can see the world differently if we see borderlines the way borderlanders do, which is that, eh, you know, I, this is, this is a fiction this, that someone else wants me to believe in. Um, and we actually can make different choices. We don't have to have violent, cruel borderlines. Um, and we're going to have to start making different choices if, you know, again, to confront climate change. I was, I was amused, which I should not have been over the summer when, you know, New York City was choking in forest fire smoke and all the headlines were about Canadian forest fire smoke. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Uh, absolutely, the smoke is coming from forest fires in Canada, but that for me as a Borderlands historian was just like a hilariously weird set of headlines that Canadian forest fire smoke was blocking out the sun in New York City. It's like, hmm, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> it, it almost sounds like um, one way I'm interpreting what you're saying is that every, every border is sort of an implicit threat, right? That yeah, even if yeah. you, mm -hmm. you, you imagine the most, as you said, the like a fictional, like the most fluffy, like, <laughs> easygoing border in the world that yeah. it's still there as an implication that uh, that could change yeah right? that, that yeah. and 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 you know if if there's a takeaway that maybe you want readers to come away from this book understanding it might be that and that there are people that live in the shadow of those implicit threats yeah. right? and stare them and stare them down yeah. don't don't let them completely control their life as much as as much as they might yeah yeah i think that absolutely be one of my big takeaways and again for the longest time you know canadians were fond of that oh we had the longest unmilitarized border in the world that did, that did not mean that it was easy and fun for everyone to just walk across Right. Like, you know, again, ask any indigenous person on one side of the line or the other for the last century, if they could just like walk across. Um, you know, there's lots, you know, any Asian person, I mean, just because it's not militarized and again, you know, debatable, depending on how you use that word, because um, it's not militarized doesn't mean that it's fine. So, yeah, that's I think one of the big takeaways is just think a little bit more critically, maybe about what you think that border is, what you think it is doing. And then probably the second takeaway is what I was talking a bit about before is maybe try looking at the world the way borderlands communities look at the world. What, what would change if you see that line as a bit of a fiction, as a bit of a figment of a government's imagination? I like, you know, your language about they are all inherently a threat one way or the other. Um, so what if we see the folks on the other side as family? What would change? 
Um, okay, you might have to let go of some of your, you know, national myth making, but maybe that's an acceptable price to pay to face some of these other kind of more, you know, existential threats that the, the humanity is, is facing right now. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely it. If, if, if there were to be two takeaways and maybe a third being that, you know, I just think Borderlands historians are a wonderful, weird bunch. I really, you know, we are somehow approaching our craft. I do think at times we're kind of a different, a different bunch of folks um, challenging the silos of the discipline. Um, but on a bigger level, yeah, think more critically about what borders. They're not neutral. They're not neutral. Um, and secondly, what if you see them the way a Borderlands person sees them, which is, I've got family on the other side. I've got connections on the other side. What happens on the other side matters to me, um, and I have a stake in it. You're you're kind of convincing me in this conversation <laughs> that that well well not just convincing me in general. I was already on board with Borderlands history to, to begin, but but you're you're convincing me that that Borderlands history is a, a kind of a radical way of doing history, a radical way of seeing the world, right? Thank that you. Is, I think so. Is, yeah. It's tr it's trying to get people to take things which others may think of as a given and as eternal and reimagining mm -hmm. something as basic as the nation state itself, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. um, which I mean, you know, every historian, right? I mean, it's it's our job in general to get people like mm -hmm. whatever a present day viewer takes for granted. We specialize in saying, "Hey, do you want to look at the last two centuries or two millennia of like weird history that brought us here?" But yeah, um, my obvious bias is that I think Borderlands historians are, are doing something a little bit differently and, and are critiquing, as I said way back at the start of our conversation, why do we take the nation state so for granted? Why, we know why and how that that has become so normal. Um, and I think that's a problem. <laughs> so I, I applaud my fellow Borderlands scholars who are saying, yeah, let's look at the weird way that these lines were invented and deployed. Let's look at how often those same enforcement policies just keep failing. And why don't we stop trying the same dumb policy over and over again? Um, what if we think differently about one of the most fundamental pieces of how the modern world is organized? And then for my last question here today, I always like to get a preview of what my guests are working on, since I know historians and historians are always working on something. And I'm sure that you are no exception. So um, this book has been out for about a year. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what other projects you've had uh, sort of in the in the oven in the meantime. What, what have you been working on since or at the same time as this one? Um, well, I mean, I hate to I hate to kind of break the mold, but I that one at the moment I don't have another big history related project on the go. Um, I've been involved with some teaching related projects here on campus, and that's sort of my main focus um, right now. I'm I'm head of a team developing uh, uh, resources to support excellence in teaching on this campus. So that's been I'm I'm enjoying the chance to shift a bit towards more teaching focused. Um, projects. So at the moment, no future book in the works. I have lots, I have ideas, but, you know, books are a lot of work and I'm not sure if I've got another one in me, to be honest. <laughs> so at, at the moment, um, I have been enjoying since that one was finished, being able to just, as I say, I've redirected a lot of the mental space um, towards um, some teaching projects. Um, and and that's that that may just be it for the next little while i don't know i'll let you know if that changes but <laughs> that's the well, current plan I, if if i can ask one last question about yeah. that yeah. um i'm curious if uh if and how at all your uh fascination with borderlands has informed your teaching and, and yes and your teaching. <laughs> yes thank you for asking me that question yes it does i think because my obsession with the invisible lines of history mostly the edges of nation state but others i have become endlessly fascinated with um all of the other kind of weird categories people create and i think so much teaching certainly at the university level is predicated on other kinds of binaries right so like i'm the professor you are the student I have the PhD, you do not. There are the disciplinary silos that structure university education. There are the very traditional ways that most university education is still 
conducted, right? The lecture model assumes a binary, me with the PhD at the front of the room talking at you, the passive student who's, who's going to listen to me. And so, yes, um, most of both my own pedagogy in the last 20 years, as well as a lot of the projects I'm involved with on campus involve <laughs> challenging and refusing um, a lot of those binaries as well. So getting in towards student-centered learning, active learning, how can learning be about conversation and community building and engagement more so than a one-way knowledge transfer or how do we get past that binary of me as expert, you as passive recipient of my brilliance. Um, that's not actually a particularly effective teaching model. So thank you very much for that question. I, I do often uh, quietly think think to myself that uh, a lifelong obsession with the weirdness of invisible lines um, does permeate <laughs> into most other areas, I think, of my professional life. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of what I was saying before, right, is that you start by questioning something like a border, and next thing you know, you're questioning categories like professor and student, yes. or <laughs> yes. like disciplines in, in general. So yes. I think that's 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 a wonderful thing. Yeah. That's the power of borderlands history. Yeah, right? trying to challenge, like trying to convince Canadians that you know a, a warm fuzzy nationalism based on red mittens and being nice to people um, <laughs> isn't. Not only is that perhaps not quite true, it isn't actually unproblematic either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a harder sell. Dr. Sheila McManus is professor of history at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada, and their new book is Both Sides Now, Writing the Edges of the North American West, which came out with Texas A&M Press last year in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sheila. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Stephen. Great conversation.